Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is great to see all seven of you here this morning. <laughs> and all who are watching on Grace Redeemer Facebook Live, it's wonderful to see you too. Uh, glad to be with you this morning. Thankful for this means of communicating with you and uh, just thankful to be with you and worship the Lord another Sunday. Now, well, it is Mother's Day, and I just want to add my word of welcome and thanksgiving to all the mothers out there, to my own mom who gave me life, and to Molly who gave my kids life, and Molly's mom, I know you're watching too, who gave Molly life. So I'm thankful for all you moms and all the moms out there. Just so grateful for you, and uh, thank you for all you do. Amen. Amen. Uh, this week, we are going to be continuing our study in the book of Romans. Uh, and this week I'm entitling our message, uh, God's Superabounding Grace. And we'll be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Uh, so before we get started, let's just ask the Lord for help, because this is not an easy passage. Uh, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we need it so desperately. And Lord, when we fully understand all that it is that you have given to us, uh, if we can ever reach that point, Lord, uh, maybe we would reach our full level of gratitude to you. Uh, Lord, we are just so thankful for you, for your son, and what he did on the cross for our sins. Lord, help us now with this difficult passage, and uh, Lord, help us to uh, understand it by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, my earliest memory uh, is probably from about the time that I was three years old. It's actually the only memory I have of my uh, mother's father, my grandfather on my mother's side. Uh, I remember that I was standing with my two brothers outside of his house in Brooklyn, and we were kind of uh, holding hands, and we were swinging our arms together, and he wanted to take our picture, and he said, stop swinging your arms, or the picture's going to come out blurry. That's it. That's the only memory I have of him, and I think that's the earliest memory I have of my entire life. Uh, before that, my memory is a complete blank. I, I know nothing that happened before that. Uh, I was born in 1965, but I have no memory of being born. I had nothing to do with my birth. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was president when I was born, but I didn't vote for him. Uh, the Vietnam War was just getting started, but I had nothing to do with the conflict and, and anything that started it. Um, the Beatles were a worldwide phenomenon, but I knew nothing about them. Uh, the space race was in full swing by that point, but that had nothing to do with me either. Uh, I was just born into a world that had pre-existing realities, things that existed before I got there and happened to be there when I arrived that I had nothing to do with. And aside from all the current events that were going on at the time, uh, I was also born into a world that was contaminated by sin, uh, a sin that I didn't commit. And I was also born with a sin nature that I didn't ask for. And that is the case with each and every one of us. Uh, it's a problem that we all have. We were all born into the present reality of, of uh, being uh, tagged with original sin and possessing this sin nature. Uh, and it's a problem that began in the Garden of Eden thousands of years ago. And it still exists today, but today we're going to talk about how God, by God's grace, by God's superabounding grace, he has solved that problem for us. Now, we have a difficult passage ahead of us today. Uh, as, as we go through this passage, I just want to say, I didn't write it. Paul wrote it. God wrote it. Uh, it's a hard passage. Uh, so we just have to go and uh, talk about what God has given us today, and, and we'll work through the passage. But uh, it's, a, it's a 
difficult uh, passage theologically and also structurally. Uh, we'll get to t verse 12, and then, uh, you know, as Paul is uh, sometimes uh, eager to do, he'll, he'll start a thought, and then he breaks the thought off with uh, four or five verses that are uh, kind of underneath or apart from that thought, and then he picks up the original thought again. So he does that uh, with verse 12, and then... Uh, picking up the thought again in verse 18. And then there's also this series of comparisons and contrasts that go back and forth between Adam and Jesus and Adam and Jesus that can be somewhat repetitious and somewhat confusing and some of the vocabulary is difficult. Uh, so it's difficult structurally. And theologically, it's difficult too because we're talking about uh, why we are guilty of Adam's sin and how the sin nature uh, was transmitted to us. Uh, and we'll be talking about the curse of sin that entered into the world that, that came through one man and then yet how one man also was able to reverse that curse. So uh, it's a complex passage and for that reason I thought that I would summarize it first kind of like with a wide angle lens uh, before we uh, look at it uh, zooming in on the passage as we, as we look at it verse by verse. So here is how I would summarize the passage. Adam broke God's law and sin and death entered the world. Now, sin causes spiritual and physical death. Physical death spread to all men because we are all guilty of Adam's sin. And spiritual death was spread to all men by the sin nature that we inherited from him. But even though Adam's sin convicted and corrupted the entire world, the work of another man, Jesus Christ, was greater. We deserve death because of our guilt, but we will inherit life because of his superabounding grace. So... Uh, if we can keep that in mind as we dig into the nitty-gritty of the passage, this is really what the passage is all about. Uh, the sin of Adam brings us down, but the grace of God brings us up higher than we even were uh, before Adam sinned. So uh, we'll start this, uh, this sermon talking about how peace was lost. A peace was lost because sin and death entered the world through one man. And we'll look at verses 12 to 14. Therefore... Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And now here we see the break where Paul is going to start a second thought. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come." So we'll start with verse 12, because that is the main point of the, of the verse that Paul was talking about before he digressed. Uh, so we're talking about, in verse 12, the transmission of the sin nature to Adam. So what we understand from looking at verse 12 is that he's referencing what we commonly refer to as the fall. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam and Eve that they could eat from any tree uh, in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that they ate of that tree, they would surely die. And then Satan entered the scene uh, in the form of a serpent in Genesis chapter 3, and he convinced Eve uh, that, the, that the fruit would not cause them to die. Uh, he made Eve believe that God was withholding his best from Eve, not wanting Eve to become uh, like God, for in the day that, that she ate of the fruit, she would be like God, knowing good from evil. And so Eve looked at that fruit and saw that it was good for food and a delight to the eyes, uh, and that it was uh, desirable to make one wise. And then Eve ate, and then she gave to Adam, and Adam ate also. Incidentally, I think that the reason that, uh, that 
Paul and God hold Adam liable for this sin is because Adam was created first. He was given dominion over Eve and uh, Eve was deceived, whereas it seems that Adam was not deceived, that he ate the fruit willfully. Uh, so that's the reason why I think that, that Adam is the one who is held accountable here. But what we find out is that immediately there were consequences. Uh, innocence was immediately lost. Uh, before they lived in perfect harmony with each other. Remember, they were naked and unashamed. But as soon as they ate, they knew that they were naked, which means that they had lost their innocence. And, and it also means that they had broken fellowship with each other. All of a sudden, there was shame between them, and they needed to cover themselves up with fig leaves that they had made. And then God called out for them in the garden and said, I'm looking for you. And and they hid from him. And so what we see is that they had broken fellowship with each other and with God. And God convicted them of sin and he pronounced judgments on them. And he said, men, uh, you will have difficulty uh, making this ground bear food for you. And women, you will have difficulty in childbirth. And it will be your desire to reign over your husband, but you will not be able to. And so uh, we see a broken innocence and, and now brokenness and pain in the world. And they would die physically in the future, but they died spiritually that day. And they now had a sin nature. Uh, something inside of them changed constitutionally that they were different than they were before. And since then, every person who has ever lived has inherited this sin nature from Adam. Uh, we all enter the world spiritually dead, and spiritually dead means that we are separated from God. And so uh, we are guilty because we have a sin nature, but we're also guilty for the sin that we will actually commit. Uh, and it doesn't take long in Genesis to understand that uh, not only is the sin nature transmitted, but it seems that the actual sin of the people becomes progressively worse. Remember, Adam and Eve gave birth to a son, and whenever you give birth to a son, you have high hopes for the young man and what he might become. And what Cain became was a murderer. He murdered his brother. Uh, and so, uh, again, the, the sin becomes worse. And what we see then as we come to chapter 6 is that the world was so full of sin uh, that every intent of man's thought was continually evil so that God decided that he had to destroy the world with a flood. And so that's what he did, saving only Noah and his family. And so they're on the ark, and it's not long after they come off the ark that Noah uh, immediately sins uh, by drunkenness and by nakedness. Now, it doesn't say specifically in that passage what the sin was, but drunkenness in the Bible is always uh, presented as sin. So probably that's what the sin was. And then somehow Ham sinned by looking at his father's nakedness. Uh, we are not given details on that either, but lots of sin going on there. And so uh, that's their sin. And so they populate the whole earth. And by Genesis chapter 11, we have the men building uh, this tower that would reach up to the heavens at Babel uh, so that they might make a name for themselves. And so they specifically disobeyed God who told them to be fruitful, multiply, populate the whole earth. And they didn't do that, so God had to confuse their languages to foil their plot. And so even the destruction <clears throat> of the earth did not prevent man's sin nature from being transmitted on and on. And of course God knew this. This does not take anything that took God by surprise. He knew what was going to happen. Uh, but but, but uh, the sin nature was in the world now, and we all have it. David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And so he knew 
from the moment of conception uh, that he was a sinner. Uh, it's transmitted from Adam to us and through our ancestors, as we see in this slide, from Adam to his son to his son, all the way down to you and to me, uh, inherited sin. Uh, and so that is our inherited sin nature and the reason why we are spiritually dead at birth. We have this sin nature, but uh, not only do we have this sin nature, but we are also guilty of Adam's sin also. And so we'll look now <clears throat> at the origin of sin and death. You know, this phrase in verse 12, because all sinned, has caused a lot of theological debate uh, over the centuries. Uh, the Bible is clear that Adam sinned, and through Adam's sin, sin and death entered the world. But what does it mean that death spread to the whole world because all sinned? So is Paul talking about Adam's sin or is he talking about our sin? Well, in this passage, what we see is that Paul repeatedly talks about the sin of the one man. Uh, and through one man, sin entered the world. Uh, the sin of the one man in this passage. So I think it's pretty clear that he's not talking about our individual sins. He's talking about Adam's sin. Now, somehow, God uh, took Adam's sin and declared us guilty of it. He imputed or credited Adam's sin to our account when Adam sinned all those years ago. Now, how God imputed that sin to us is what's up for debate among theologians. Uh, some theologians hold what is called the federal head view, which means that Adam sinned as our representative. Uh, so Adam's decision to sin was binding on you and me uh, because he was our representative, our federal head. Uh, just like when our government makes decisions that bind you and me, uh, even though we didn't have anything to do with those decisions, we're still bound by them. The government is our federal head, so Adam is our federal head and our representative. And so by Adam's sin, everybody he, he represents becomes a sinner as well. So that's one view. The other view is what is known as the seminal view, which means that we were present in Adam when he sinned. Uh, so that means that we were uh, organically joined to him as his future descendants. We are in his loins, so to speak, and so we are guilty of his sin. Uh, you remember in Hebrews chapter 7, when, uh, when the author of Hebrews is talking about how Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, he also said that Levi, being in Adam's loins, paid those tithes as well. And so the same idea is at work here, where uh, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, even though he hadn't yet been born. Uh, so we are guilty of sin uh, as uh, Adam was while we were in his loins. So whichever theory you prefer, uh, you know, theologians will debate just about anything. And, and uh, if you want to debate this issue, uh, that's fine. But the truth of the matter is that either way, we're guilty before God because of Adam's sin. God imputed or credited that sin to our account. And our sin is directly from Adam, as you see in this slide. Adam's sin goes directly to me uh, and to each one of you and to all of you watching on Facebook. Uh, Adam's sin is imputed directly to you, and you are deemed guilty of it. Now, I know what you're going to say. I know exactly what you're going to say. That's not fair. I know you're going to say that. Well, before you say that's not fair, remember that our salvation depends on the work of one man that we had nothing to do with either. And I'm going to have more to say about that in a little bit. 
So the result of Adam's sin is that sin and death entered into the world and was transmitted to the whole world. And now we're all born dead spiritually, separated from God, and we will all die physically. And in our natural state, we do not have peace with God. That peace was lost uh, because of Adam's sin, which has now infected the whole world. And as we look back at our passage, uh, it's not just since Moses and the law, as it says in verses 13 and 14. Uh, our sin dates all the way back to Adam. Even though the law didn't come in until Moses, we were still guilty of sin, still guilty of transgressing God's law, even though it hadn't been written down yet. And so that dates all the way back to our first ancestor, Adam. And Paul talked extensively about our own sin in chapters 1 through 3, which we've covered in depth already, and that's the bad news. Now, the good news is that Jesus Christ... Uh, has come, and through him, peace with God has been recovered. And that's why Adam is a type of Christ or a foreshadowing of Christ. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Adam was our representative who convicts us all of sin, but on the other hand, Jesus is our representative who can set every person free. Uh, Jesus acted as our representative in bringing peace to God. And so that is the good news. Let's see how he did it. Uh, so how peace was lost, sin and death entered the world through one man, how peace was recovered, the curse is reversed in verses 15 to 21. And here what we're going to see is that there are comparisons and contrasts back and forth between what Adam do, uh, did and, and what Jesus has done and the results that each produced. And we'll note six different comparisons here that Paul made in these verses to show that Jesus' death and resurrection is greater than Adam's sin, that it reverses Adam's sin, and not only that, it adds more to it. Uh, Jesus not only undid the damage that Adam did, but he also accomplished much more, uh, words that we see over and over again in Paul, because he achieved more by his death and resurrection than Adam lost by his transgression, because God's grace is greater than the curse. So verse 15, the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Well, because of Adam's trespass, the many died. Now, this is a, a funny term because it's, it can be translated like a figure of speech uh, where the many means all, or it can also mean many. It depends on context and uh, all these things that we would look at to, to, in terms of how we would interpret a verse. Uh, so I think Paul meant all this first time. I think it's pretty clear that he meant all uh, because when sin and death entered the world, everyone dies, right? No one is exempt from death. We are all going to die. Uh, so death was the result of all. So when Paul wrote, the many died, he meant they all died because everyone dies. Just like in verse 12, when he wrote, sin and death spread to all men because all men sinned. So that's the first use of the many. But the second use of the many is a little trickier because the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many uh, we understand that not every man is saved, right? So how does it abound to the many? Well, I think what it means here is that he means that it was offered to the many, but not that all will receive it. It's going to be received to, by the many. And that's how uh, Paul uses the word the many here. He doesn't necessarily mean all by it, unless he means that it's offered to all, but only received by many. So it's a little bit trickier use of the word the many there, but that's what it means. 
But either way, the comparison is between death that is offered through Adam's sin and life that is offered through uh, Jesus Christ and his grace. Uh, death is assured for all, uh, but grace is offered to all, but only received by the many. And so God's grace is much more because its power is much greater than the power of sin, especially the power of Adam's sin. Now, if it were only equal to Adam's sin, if God's grace and the power of Jesus were only equal to Adam's sin, what would be the result of that? The only thing that would happen would that we would have our ledger wiped clean, right? We would be at, at an even position. Uh, no sin and no grace. And as soon as we sinned the very next time, all the condemnation of God would be on us again. So really, we wouldn't have gained anything. Uh, but there, the grace of God is much more because uh, it not only washes our ledger clean, but then it adds grace and adds forgiveness and adds everything that we need for salvation to it. And so that's why it is much greater. Well, like many of you, uh, I submitted my documents recently to my accountant uh, to do my tax return. And I fully expected that I was going to owe money this year. Uh, I was hoping and praying that maybe it would be a break-even uh, situation that I wouldn't owe, uh, but that I wouldn't get a refund either. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine that I might get a refund uh, this particular year. And then when my tax accountant showed me my return, well, what do you know? Uh, not only uh, did I not owe money, but there was actually a refund coming to me too. And that's how the grace of God works. He gives us so much more than we could ever ask for or deserve. He not only brings us back to even, no debt owed, but then he heaps grace and grace on top of that. And so that's what it's like. He gives us, uh, adds to our account in ways that we don't deserve and that we couldn't imagine. So the free gift versus the transgression in verse 15. The second comparison, a condemnation versus justification. So to those who receive uh, God's grace and those who don't, there are opposite verdicts. It's condemnation for one, it's justification for the other. Uh, verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So we see the opposite results. Condemnation for one, justification for the other. Adam's sin led to condemnation because his guilt and his sin nature became ours. But then we committed our own sins too. Billions of people have lived, and those billions of people have committed billions upon billions upon billions of sins. But Jesus' righteousness is credited to all who put their faith in him. And each person can claim this free gift. It can be applied to their account. They can have their sin ledger washed clean, and they can benefit from what Jesus did on the cross. And again, we see that Christ's work is greater than sin. Uh, just one gift from Jesus is enough to cover all the transgressions that have ever been committed, and we can claim that for ourselves. If we receive Christ, the result is justification. That's right standing with God, not condemnation, which is eternal punishment. Uh, so then the third contrast comparison is death versus life. To those who make the decision, uh, there are opposite eternal consequences. So verse 17, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And so, 
for those who remain in Adam, in other words, for those who, who choose to, to remain in the state of Adam's sinful condition, uh, they remain in condemnation and their sin uh, is charged against them eternally and eternal death awaits them. Uh, sin and death reign through Adam's transgression, but much more, much more again, is the gift of righteousness to those who believe in Jesus Christ and receive life through him. They will receive an abundance of grace. Now, this word abundance simply means more than you need, right? If you have abundance, you have more than you need. Uh, the Greek word for abundance is periseon, and I just want you to keep that in mind because I'm going to come back to that later. That's the Greek word. Uh, so that's the comparison between death and life. Uh, and now a fourth comparison is between one act of transgression and one act of righteousness. And here in verse 18, Paul is going to pick up the argument again from verse 12. Remember, verses 12, uh, 13 through 17 are kind of a digression. Here he's going to complete the thought that he began in verse 12. So I'm going to read them together so you see it. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. So he begins the thought in verse 12, has a digression, and now he's come back to the main point. And uh, so here's where I want to answer the question for those who say, it's not fair. It's not fair uh, that Adam committed this sin and it's charged to me. Uh, it's not fair that God would hold me accountable for something that I didn't do. Well, I would give you three answers to that question. And the first answer to that question is, you may not have committed Adam's sin, but you've committed plenty of sin of your own, right? There is, even though we're not guilty uh, of the sin Adam committed, every time we choose to sin, we are choosing either, we are choosing Adam's way instead of choosing God's way. And every time we choose to sin, we are following Adam. We are not following Jesus. And even though we may not have committed Adam's specific sin, the sin that we've committed is no better than Adam's sin. It's all the same in God's eyes. Sin is rebellion against God, and every time we sin, we choose Adam over God. So we're guilty because of our choices, even if we weren't charged with the guilt of Adam's sin. The second argument is that Adam was not born with a sin nature. He was not born with a sin nature. He didn't have that sin transmitted to him from sinful parents. God created him and it was good. Remember that. It was good over and over again in Genesis. And he was given a perfect environment to live in. The Garden of Eden was paradise on earth, and the, the world had not yet fallen bondage to decay because of sin. This was Adam's world, and still, in the most optimal conditions that you could ever have to be successful against sin, Adam still sinned. So what makes us think that we would do any better than Adam? We wouldn't do better than Adam. We would do, we might not commit that exact sin, but we would commit some sin uh, because we're not better than Adam. We would have sinned one way or the other. But the third argument and the best argument for why uh, it's fair is because God is perfect and just and holy. And if God is perfect and just and holy, then he also has to be fair. Yes, he holds us guilty for Adam's sin, which we had nothing to do, but he offers us salvation through the work of one man, Jesus Christ, 
on the cross, and we had nothing to do with that either. So all the grace that we would ever need to overcome the sin nature that we were born with and to overcome all the sin that we have committed and to heap grace upon grace on top of it is available through Jesus Christ, and it's available to anyone who receives that gift. Jesus' one act of righteousness overcomes it all, and it saves anyone who receives the gift. Now let's look at verse 18, which says that through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now we've talked about this a little bit already, but there are a lot of people out there who think that this verse teaches universalism, the doctrine that ultimately God is going to save everyone. Uh, After all, isn't that what all men means? Doesn't all men mean that everyone will be saved? Well, uh, we have to interpret the Bible with the Bible. And the Bible repeatedly teaches that you have to be saved by faith and that not all people are going to receive the gift of faith. And the only way to be saved is to claim that gift of salvation by faith. So Christ died for everyone, but only those who receive the free gift of faith will be saved. Uh, And we could talk about uh, many verses that that say that, and I'll just give you a couple. Uh, Ephesians 2.8, For grace you have been saved, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. You have to receive a gift, not everyone will. Acts chapter 16, uh, this is Paul talking to the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Uh, John chapter 1, but as many as received him, to them he, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so we see, and I could stand up here all day citing verses that prove that you have to exercise faith and not all men will be saved. We know that these things are true. It has to be claimed. And if all men were going to be saved, then Jesus would not have warned about hell and the need for us to avoid it at all costs. So again, using the Bible to interpret the Bible, this is not teaching universalism. The meaning of the verse is that there resulted justification to all men who believe and receive God's grace. And so that is what it means to uh, that one transgression versus one act of righteousness. The one act of righteousness can save us. Now a fifth comparison. One man's disobedience versus one man's obedience. Verse 19 For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. Now, God is sovereign over his universe, and he has the right to rule it how he wants to. And we, as his creatures, are obligated to obey his laws. And disobedience is sin. And Adam's sin contaminated us with sin, but our own disobedience makes us sinners too. And every single one of us has been disobedient to God. There's only one man who ever lived who can claim perfect obedience to God. Jesus Christ, through his obedience, was that man. And his obedience qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice that God demands for sin. And that's how the many can be made righteous. Not by relying on our own work or whatever we may think that we have done or because we think that we're a good person. That's not how we get saved. We are saved by relying on the obedience of Jesus Christ to his Father who lived a sinless life and went to the cross for our sins. And there is no other way to have this perfect, his perfect record of righteousness transferred and applied to our account 
than to believe in him and trust in his righteousness. Uh, that is how his obedience uh, can benefit to our account. And finally, one more contrast between law and grace. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now remember, uh, there are lots of Jewish believers and there are lots of Jewish unbelievers and Paul is writing to people who might be asking the question, well, where's the law in all of this? Well, here's the answer. This is the purpose of the law. The law comes to make us more aware, to be more convicted, to be more cognizant of our own sin so that we would recognize the hopelessness of trying to be saved in our own power by thinking that we are somehow good enough. Uh, the law levels the playing field for everyone because everyone has broken it. No one can keep it perfectly. Only a liar says that he can. Uh, Galatians 3 says that the law came as a tutor to instruct us until the time of Jesus Christ. And so the law shows people the full weight and extent of their sins. But as vast as our sin is, God's grace is still greater where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or your translation may say that grace superabounded, if you have a translation that says that. Uh, because the word for abounded all the more, or superabounded, is this word hooper aperiasusin, which comes from the same word that we saw earlier from abundance, periseon. And so the word is, is it, it's more than, the, the word abounded all the more is more than the word abundance because what Paul did was he attached a little prefix to the beginning of the word. You see that there? That's pronounced hooper, uh, which means uh, super in our language. So we might say not just that he's a star, he's a superstar. And that's what Paul was saying here. There's abundance. No, there is super abundance. There is super grace here. Uh, so Paul was pretty much just making up a word here uh, because he run out of superlatives to talk about God's grace. And so it means that it superabounds. Whereas abundance is more than you need, superabundance is more than more than you need. It's overflowing abundance, superabundance. No matter how much sin we have, uh, we, God always has more grace, and we can never outsin God's grace. This ship is called the Seawise Giant. It is 1,504 feet long. That's five football fields, if you're doing the math. Five football fields long. It's the longest ship ever made. It can carry over 564,000 tons of cargo and it displaces more water than any other ship in history. Now, we're gonna to have to use your imagination here. Imagine you are the sea wise giant and you are carrying around 564,000 tons of your own sin and guilt. But now look at the ocean that the sea wise giant is floating on. That ocean is the ocean of God's grace. No matter how big the sea-wise giant is, the ocean, God's grace, is what causes the sea-wise giant to float. The boat and the sin that it holds is huge, but God's grace is so much bigger. If we were able to take that camera and draw it back uh, away from the earth, that ship would become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that we couldn't even see it anymore, and all we would see is the ocean of God's grace. And the final result of God's grace is verse 21. 
so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All we need to do is to come to him with the burden of our sin and sink it in the ocean of God's grace and let it sink to the bottom and let it stay there. Sin no longer reigns in death because we have attached ourselves to Jesus's one act of righteousness rather than Adam's one act of sin. And because of that, eternal life is ours. Now, I wish I had time to talk about the importance. I just want to note the importance of Adam being a real historical figure, because you'll hear a lot of teaching now that Adam was not a real historical figure. Well, Paul certainly believed he was a real historical figure, and Jesus believed that he was a real historical figure, and without Adam, there is no explanation for how sin came into the world, so Adam has to be a real historical figure. Uh, and so I just want us to note that in passing, that it's important to recognize uh, that he is a real historical figure and that sin and death entered the world through him. That's how we, ha we can answer the question, where did sin and death come from? Well, it came from Adam. What's the answer? The answer is Jesus. Our worldview makes sense. Well, chapter 5 is a marvel of God's grace and provision. Uh, it starts with having been justified by faith. So we see this, this uh, act of God justifying us. And then we talk for the first 11 verses about the present and the future benefits of justification. They were numerous. And now in verses 12 to 21, we see what makes grace necessary and what makes it possible. Now, I think if pressed, if you really held me to it, I would say that Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the Bible, and we'll get there uh, in a little bit. But Romans 5 would have to make the top five. It's all about grace, the grace that God provides, all that he has done for us. Uh, grace is a gift that God gives to us, and it's given in love to people who don't deserve it, who couldn't earn it, but can receive it anyway. A grace is the greatest gift we can ever receive because it's what we need to get through our daily life, and it applies to us for all eternity. There's no other gift like that, and we can have it just by saying yes to God and receiving his offer today. So let me give you just two quick takeaways as we close. The first one is this. Don't ever say, God could never accept me. I'm too bad. If you believe that, then you don't understand God's grace and God's power. God's offer is universal. He will save anyone who comes to him and believes in his son for salvation. It doesn't matter what you've done. God will never say uh, that you are too bad. I can't accept you. But on the other hand, don't ever say God will accept me because I'm good. There is no one who is good. We've already seen that in Romans. That's why we all need grace. That's why Paul spent the first five chapters of Romans talking about our need for grace and the God who supplies it through Jesus Christ. I just told you that you're not too bad to ever receive God's grace, but also don't ever think you're too good to need it. That's an opposite problem. God's grace is offered through Jesus Christ, and he will not accept you any other way, but he will accept you if you come that way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So receive him and be saved and praise God for his super abounding grace. Let's pray. Lord God, what can we say uh, about all that you have done when we think about this chapter? Lord, when we think about your super abounding grace, more than more than we need, uh, Lord, the picture is just overflowing grace that we can't, we can't even contain it all. That's how much you pour out on us. 
Lord, we are so thankful for your Son who provided it to us so that we can have eternal life through him. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone listening who has not yet received that grace today, that they will bow the knee to you, Lord, and admit that they are a sinner in need of this grace and that they would ask Jesus to be their Savior. Lord, I thank you uh, that we get to preach this message every week. Lord, that you have just given us this word, super abounding in power. Uh, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might come to know you better. And Lord, we thank you for the grace that you supply. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.